Inside the keep of a Morton Joe, it's the Digigods. Please welcome two milk slaves who are currently hooked up to that lactation machine. Wade Major and Mark Kaiser. Ew. Corey? Really? Wade gets top billing when it comes to lactation machines. Oh. No comment. Hmm. That was sent in by Billy Milby, Shiny and Chrome. Oh, Billy. That was a bit too far, lactation. I mean, I love a I love a good Mad Max reference, but I don't know. That you know. I just yeah. love how you made it seem as if Corey was in the room. <laughs> and the Oscar goes to Wade Major. Not really. <laughs> I'm, it's not like I'm dancing with Tom and Jerry. Um, dancing uh, with Tom and Jerry? What does that mean? Uh, it was the, the, the Gene Kelly when he danced with uh, Jerry. Oh, right. Not right. Tom. Tom wasn't right. part of it. It was Gene and Jerry dancing. Well, <laughs> you remember that? It's legendary. It is legendary. Yeah. Great great bit of animation, yes. live action, combo-ness. So last week we let off. Uh, we weren't able. We had our conference call uh, with our wonderful web designer, Kim. Yes, because Wade wouldn't shut up about some movie we didn't care about. <laughs> Sorry, guys, we have a we had a conference call. We yes. are we are in the in the process of designing after many false starts. Yes, and Wade not following through on the on his promise yeah. to deliver needed paperwork uh, on the uh, website that we are designing. Yeah. That will be a hub for the podcast. Our written and film it will reviews. Grow. It will grow over time, but yes, yes, and hopefully with you with your participation and help it will grow over time we will have uh, areas in the site where you guys can post your blog entries and thoughts on film or blu-ray and so we're in the process of figuring all that out yes we are yes we are and so uh last week we left off we had a lot of stuff we were going to uh talk about we didn't get to so you know what uh we're going to pick up right there this week uh we're still in classic movie mode here and there's some really really great stuff and uh, i'm glad we can start off this week with this because it's so, so, so awesome. Uh, it is often discussed, is often talked about how uh, women just don't get the, the same breaks in the, in the film business. There aren't enough women directors, there aren't enough women screenwriters, there aren't enough women behind the cameras. And uh, it was not always thus. It is, that is more a phenomenon that happened sort of after World War II, frankly. And much more a phenomenon of the uh, of you know the fifties and sixties and and afterwards because a lot of women were writing. I mean, in the nineteen thirties and forties, a lot of them were editing. A lot of women were editing, and they're for also sure. co- they're also colorizing. Yeah, so uh, it was it was a more egalitarian industry actually prior to the nineteen fifties, prior to the the aftermath of World War Two. That's when it became decidedly male. But uh, we have an amazing. Uh, boxed set here from Flickr Alley. We love Flickr Alley. They they do such great work. They are of course also a partner in uh, Filmstruck. They furnish a lot of the product that shows up on Filmstruck and uh, Flickr Alley, working with the Blackhawk Films Collection and Lobster Films and the Library of Congress, but primarily with Blackhawk Films, which uh, is the uh, is the library that was put together by David Shepard so lovingly before he passed away. Uh, far too recently, last year. Um, 
Black, this is Early Women Filmmakers, an international anthology, and it is a wonderful, wonderful box set. Uh, I, it's cu- entirely curated by David Shepard prior to his passing, and we're talking about 11 hours of material that spans all the way from the early silent era right up into the middle of World War II, 90, about you know four decades, really. Uh, four decades in 11 hours, and it is amazing. Two dozen films on six discs. It is just absolutely beautiful. And you get names that you uh, certainly should know, like Alice Guy Blachet, uh, Lois Weber, Mabel Norman. These are all names that are, that are clearly uh, still very much a part of, um, of film history. Uh, even controversial figures, Lenny Riefenstahl is represented here. But then you get others like Lottie Reiniger, Claire Parker, um, Mrs. Wallace Reed, otherwise known as Dorothy Davenport. Um, there, are, there are filmmakers here I didn't even know before. Maya Darren, I'm familiar with. Dorothy Arzner, certainly I'm familiar with. Mary Ellen Butte, had never heard of her. Uh, Madeline Brandeis, wasn't familiar. Germaine Deluc, uh, Duloc, was not familiar with. And uh, the, the Russian filmmaker... Olga, and I'm going to mutilate her name, Olga Priobrazhenskaya. I did better than I thought I would. Uh, so it's just, it's really, really an amazing collection. Uh, there's even an audio commentary here for Lois Weber's The Blot. Um, it's just absolutely terrific. Um, you, I, I, I can't recommend this highly enough. If you're a film history fan, you will love this. Early Women Filmmakers, an international anthology. It is on Blu-ray. It is beautiful, tr- beautifully transferred, amazingly well curated. This is a classic film history. you got to have this. So you didn't like it? Uh, it was okay. So, uh, Mark, we got a bunch here from uh, Twilight Time. And, we uh, love the Twilight Time. We love Twilight Time. Go to twilighttimemovies.com. Twilighttimemovies.com. You are going to uh, just uh, absolutely revel in this. So um, one of the Japanese directors that I was less familiar with from the uh, New Wave period, the Japanese New Wave period, is director Kiyoshi Saiki. And now, uh, you know, I'm familiar with the films, never really saw much of his stuff. Uh, you know, I just knew he was in the mix. He wasn't up there with Kobayashi or Kurosawa or, you know, uh, Konichikawa or Ozu or those guys. I mean, you know, there are others that were sort of... But this is really an amazing movie. This is uh, called Brutal Tales of Chivalry. And it is... Uh, it's a little... It's more pulpy, but uh, it's a great early performance by um, Ken, Takura, Ten, Ken Takakura as a Yakuza who comes back from World War II and uh, discovers that uh, his, his, his home village has been completely obliterated. And uh, that leads him into a, uh, a, a dangerous path, let's just say, a dangerous path. And, you know, we all know usually what that path uh, consists of. But um, it's really, really, uh, it's, a, it's a tough film. It's an artistic film. It's, uh, it walks a really, really interesting line in terms of its themes and, and, its, and its emotions. And it's really rock solid, and it's beautifully done. And Toei, of course, is is one of the oldest studios in existence. And this is a wonderful get for Twilight Time from the Toei Library. So I I salute them. Well done. Uh, we also have from Twilight Time Inferno in 3D. Uh, this is one from a previous 3D era of the 1950s. A, uh, a, a movie that is uh, not exactly a 3D landmark, 
Uh, but certainly one that is is interesting in terms of uh, the history of 3D and why this would have been in 3D in the first place. A bunch of special features here, including the isolated music track and uh, Alan Road and um, uh, Lisa Ryan, the daughter of Robert Ryan, do a commentary on this, which is really, really interesting. And, uh, you know, the this is kind of, a, a again, this is a little bit of an unusual film to put it to in 3D because it's all like a two-hander in the desert, basically. Uh, Robert Ryan... Uh, is a millionaire who is abandoned by his wife uh, and her new lover in the desert. And he's got to sort of, you know, find his way back. And, you know, you think, well, why would that have been in 3D? I don't know. But it's a, it's a great, very sort of uh, constrained, solitary story. And Rhonda Fleming as his wife is wonderful. Rhonda Fleming, of course, would go on to marry Ted Mann of Mann Theater fame. And, uh, you know, uh, that's sort of her claim to fame now. But in any case, um, directed by Roy Baker, very, very well. Kind of a little bit like uh, the Star Trek episode Arena. There's a little bit of that here. (laughs) That's Mark's cue to give me the uh, the scores. Anyway, uh, good little film. That is Inferno in 3D. More recently, we have The Man in the Moon which introduced us to Reese Witherspoon as a young girl. And uh, this was also one of the last films directed by Robert Mulligan, uh, one of the great directors of the Golden Era. So you're, it's, it's sort of amazing. Isn't it weird now to think that Robert Mulligan directed Reese Witherspoon? Isn't that a weird thing to think of? And he was also a sitcom actor. Mulligan? Oh, that's Richard Mulligan. Oh, it's a Mulligan. different... Stop. Oh, my gosh. You pushed me over on that one. Okay. No, but I mean, it's it's a little bit of a weird thing because this is Robert Mulligan, you know, who who directed movies in the fifties and sixties. Well, that's, that, that's that's the thing, uh, you know, him working with Reese Witherspoon is a weird. It's like a cross generational yeah. disconnect. It's like when it's like when Alfred Hitchcock worked with Paul Newman. Yeah, it's like they seem like two totally different different eras. Yeah, yeah. Now or or you know Charles Crichton working with uh, Fish called doing Fish called Wanda. You know, same same yeah. kind of deal. It's just it's it's fascinating when you get those. Get those things anyway. Um, it's a very sweet film. Uh, basically, a, a you know small town in the south, a slice of life, a coming of age. Uh, Reese Witherspoon is wonderful. You can tell that she's going to be a huge, huge star. Freddie Francis shoots the daylights out of this thing. Great cinematography, and I think this is another great get for Twilight Time. Um, this is a very old-fashioned movie made for modern audiences and beautifully done by a classic old director. It's really a great get. The Stone Killer. Not one of my favorites. Uh, Charles Bronson working with uh, Michael Winner again, you know, 1973. Uh, the best thing about this are this, these supporting performances. Um, Norman Fell, Martin Balsam, all those character actors that we loved from that era. Uh, they really, really topped this out. I can't, I can't say that, uh, you know, it's kind of a... It, it feels a little stale as far as mafia stories go. Everything in the wake of The Godfather feels a little bit stale. And a lot of this stuff that was being done at the time of The Godfather and a little bit before and a little bit after, like Requiem or uh, Vendetta for the Saint with Roger mm-hmm. Moore, mm-hmm. it all feels kind of hokey once you get into The Godfather, you know. But anyway, Stone Killer, it, uh, for you you winner fans of the winner um, Charles Bronson collaboration, uh, you know, it, it doesn't disappoint. It just isn't, you know, it doesn't date terribly well. Year of the Comet um, is uh, n- it should not be confused with um, 
any of the other movies that have Comet in the title. There's Night of the Comet, which I'm particularly fond of. Night of the Comet is kind of a weird post-apocalyptic yeah, comedy. Night it's Comet's good. Cool. Right? It's fun. So Year of the Comet, not to be confused with those. This is a Peter Yates film from 1992, more recent. Uh, this was a New Line production at the time uh, through Castle Rock Entertainment with a, a, a sort of famous for being a film that was not as good as everybody that was involved in it. Um, Penelope Ann Miller and Tim Daly were the stars, and you're like, what? Written by William Goldman, produced and directed by Peter Yates, cinematography by Roger Pratt. That's a lot of good talent, but it's it's a kind of a weird... It feels like, the, it, it feels like something that um, Streisand and Ryan O'Neill would have passed on like 20 years earlier and sat really? around yeah and then we well let's let's resurrect this old william goldman script and streisand and ryan o'neill aren't going to do it because they're too old so who's available penelope ann miller and tim daly it's kind of weird um i but still you know william goldman wrote it so that's that's worth something and uh yeah it's worth i guess it's worth checking out it's a it's a really weird kind of anachronism uh in any case you're the comment and then lastly, a movie that I think is really, really woefully underrated, Who'll Stop the Rain, uh, starring Nick Nolte when he was still kind of uh, young and strapping and um, a leading man. Beautifully directed, this is from 1978, beautifully directed by Carol Rice, uh, one of the more solid uh, European imports from that time, and um, uh, based on a novel by Robert Stone, who also co-wrote the screenplay. Um, this is a, uh, I'm, I'm not familiar with the, with the, uh, the novel, which is Dog Soldiers, uh, which I think would have made a better title than Who'll Stop the Rain. Doggy! Right, Who'll Stop the Rain, like Dog Soldiers or Who'll Stop the Rain? Which is, which title are you going to go with? It's the Creedence Clearwater song. It's the Creedence Clearwater revival song, Who'll Stop the Rain? Yeah, but why would you name, it's not, I guess, okay. In 1978, is that song still really all the rage? Well, it's not. It's not that it's all the rage. It's that it's, it's thematically the song matches the movie. Okay. Well, anyway, I guess uh, this movie was unfortunately really overrated. Uh, not overrated, but overshadowed in 1978 by The Deer Hunter because they had similar stories in many respects. And The Deer Hunter, of course, went on to just win all kinds of awards and Academy Awards, and uh, it just it took the world by storm. And Robert De Niro was a bigger deal than Nick Nolte at the time, so you weren't going to get a lot of. Uh, Nick Nolte's a nut job. Huh? Nick Nolte's a nut job. Yeah, well, he is now, but he wasn't. Well, maybe he was then. No, anyway. He was always a nut job. So, uh, but he's cool. Well, uh, this is basically about a. Uh, uh, it's about a bunch of Vietnam vets and the and uh, some other guys who get involved in a uh, heroin smuggling plan from Vietnam to San Francisco. Hey, look, we've all been there. And uh, it it has a lot of interesting. I mean, it's it is it is at once a it's a thriller, but it's also very very much about the fallout of the Vietnam War and what it does to veterans and how you cope and coming home and all that kind of stuff. So a lot of the same themes as in the Deer Hunter. Very different story, but it's wrestling with a lot of the same issues. But again, it just uh, you know the same year as the Deer Hunter, people overlooked it. So I am going to say Carol Rice and Nick Nolte, uh, much too important of a collaboration. Tuesday Weld, wonderful in this, much. Too important of a collaboration to uh, let slide. Twilight Time, wonderful job for uh, digging this one up and uh, handing it to us. Isolated track and uh, a little discussion on the film with the editor, John Bloom. So there's that. Um, Mark, let's talk about some Arrow releases from the Arrow Library. Arrow is, is giving us a lot of stuff this month. Look and, at this, uh, way. Look at this big mf -er. And, you know, do you really want, is that too much pinhead? 
Is you can never have enough. Uh, you know, these movies didn't do it for me. I, yeah. This was these were too cheesy. I was more of like the John Carpenter yeah. guy back then. But this yeah. is um, this is a very impressive uh, box Hellraiser. set. This is Hellraiser, the uh, Scarlet Box. Yeah. Which has uh, Hellraiser, Hellraiser Two, Hellraiser Three, and it's got a couple of other discs, including the Clive Barker Legacy. It's hard, you know. Clive Barker was sort of the not the poor man Stephen King, but he was like the straight horror Stephen King. Well, Clive Barker, yeah, but but he was Clive Barker. Also, has a very particular thing that he does, which it's very kind of um, there's something gothic about his stuff too. It's, it's not even just gothic; it's rooted in a kind of um, it's it's rooted in two things. So aesthetically, it borrows a lot from sort of homoerotic S and M, right? And in terms of subject, it goes into all kinds of occultism. So it's like he's marrying. Uh, Satanism and occultism and that whole aspect of horror and the other world and the netherworld and demons and all that stuff. He's marrying that with the the look and the stylings of you know uh, homoerotic S and M like you know ball gags and leather and vinyl and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and and he puts it all together in a really creepy way, and um, uh, it's you know it's his it's his thing. I mean, he you see something look just like you know. That a Stephen King thing is a Stephen King thing. You know that a Clive Barker thing is a Clive Barker thing. You just do. Well, Hellraiser is definitely a Clive Barker thing, and the uh, the box set also includes a two hundred page book, Damnation Games, which is uh, a great look back at his uh, his career and his legacy. So yeah, so if you love Hellraiser, and why wouldn't you? <laughs> then uh, I didn't, but uh, I, I I respected the fact that it, it had a thing, it had a moment, it had a yeah. time. People liked it. Uh, I would definitely get this Arrow um, release. This is really a well put together Big box mama. set. Big Mama, beautiful. It has a little uh, that diamond cutout, like a little portal vortex. I know. It's all very smart. I mean, it's 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 really smart packaging. Well done, Arrow. Gosh, they are just they've moved into the American market with a vengeance. And from the Arrow Academy line, separate line. So we, we make sure you keep keep these things distinct because if it's Arrow, just to, just that so we clarify this, and I don't know that we've ever really drawn this this line. Arrow is the is the wing of they're they're, they're kind of separate. I mean, they're separate lines, same company, separate lines, but all managed differently. Arrow is all of the kind of genre and cult and pop culture stuff, and Arrow Academy is their criteriony foreign stuff so they're they're more kind of legit stuff um if if hellraiser doesn't appeal to you this one will the jacques rivette collection is amazing and to straight up die for uh i am a huge fan of jacques rivette i think he's just one of the, he is the original uh french new wave director he is the one that paved the way for all the rest of them even though things like breathless and 400 blows were the first to hit jacques rivette is the godfather of that whole movement uh, he made um, uh, La Belle Noiseuse, which is, you know, four hours of, you know, a guy painting a naked lady. And it's amazing. It's just, you know, I saw that with Norman. Really? Yeah, we went and saw it and we were just all blown away, completely blown away at the new art. It was amazing. Uh, I mean, it's Michelle Piccoli and Emmanuel Bayard, and she's naked, and he's drawing and painting her and struggling with it. And uh, It sounds like something Norman would like. Yeah. <laughs> Very true. Anyway, this box set is uh, absolutely fantastic. It includes three films. What are you listening to? <laughs> so if you go on Twitter, of course, uh, okay, 
Go to Michael Giacchino's. This will be this will be way gone by the time you get to it. But go to Michael Giacchino's Twitter uh, account. Uh-huh. He posted a 30 second clip, a full orchestral rendering of the Spider-Man TV theme from the 60s. I could play it for okay. you now, but it's not uh, the same. OK. It's cool. All right. Weird. So anyway, so that reminded me of the of, of Spider-Pig. And I was playing the Simpsons okay. Spider Pig. Oh, my goodness. So that's what Jacques Rivette gets out of you. So Jacques Rivette, after he made the amazing uh, legendary Out One, he uh, wanted to make a quartet of inter- interconnected films that dealt with you know similar themes, different genres and whatnot. And he never actually completed all of them. Um, but he got through three. And the first, uh, they, those three are on this uh, box set. Uh, Duel, Noiro. And um, a, a film called Merry-Go-Round, which is kind of like the, the Merry-Go-Round is sort of left over from the ashes of a discontinued film with Albert Finney and Leslie Caron called Marie and Julienne. Anyway, uh, it's fast. Duel is a fantasy. Uh, Noirot is a pirate movie and uh, with Geraldine Chaplin, of all people. And then uh, the, uh, the last one, Merry-Go-Round, is maybe the most legitimate film that ever starred Joe D'Alessandro, who was, you know, the, the, the Warhol guy, uh, and Maria Schneider uh, in a kind, of a kind of a really cool, moody drama set in Paris. Anyway, it is, um, it, is, it is a testament to just what an amazing filmmaker he is. Jacques Rivette just absolutely kills it with these movies. And it's a beautiful box set, all on Blu-ray from Arrow Academy. I highly, highly, highly recommend it for anybody who is a French New Wave fan. And then the remaining stuff from the uh, Arrow labels, uh, two from the Arrow Academy are Three Brothers by Francesco Rossi, which is uh, Blu-ray and DVD uh, discs on this one. Tons of special uh, special content, uh, beautifully restored from 2K uh, source materials. And... um, uh, the uh, this is sort of um, it's not a neorealist film. Rossi is not really a neorealist per se, but he kind of flirts with that uh, same with a lot of the same with the milieu a little bit. Um, but it's a beautiful movie. It's very much about post-war Italy, and um, it falls in with a lot of that uh, it- uh, neorealist stuff. The way that Italian life was changing in the in the wake of the war and, and a completely new society. It's uh, it's really a beautiful film. And then uh, Marcello Mastroianni in Ilio Petri's The Assassin. This is also a Blu-ray and DVD combo set. Uh, also uh, from a 2K restoration done in the Cineteca di Bologna, which does wonderful work. And uh, this is more, this is a moodier, stranger, more kind of uh, in, in a Franz Kafka kind of a realm. Um, it feels a little bit more third man-ish in some respects. Well, respect. that's a compliment. Yeah, right? Uh, Fla. Yeah. And this is this is when uh, Marcello Mastroianni was in his prime, and uh, you know he's a, he, it's kind of a Hitchcockian thing where he's a, he's an antique dealer, who they suspect of having murdered his lover, and then uh, everything gets into real you know it really really gets into the weeds at a certain point, and uh, things get very strange, and uh, you know there's a lot of social commentary in it as well. Perfect, perfectly awesome movie, and then the last five here from uh, regular Arrow line. Joe D'Alessandro, once again, in The Climber, and this is more kind of pulpy, trashy stuff like we're accustomed to getting from him. Um, it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's a gangster movie, basically, written and directed by Pasquale uh, Squitiere. And 
it's you know what you would expect for a for a, a gangster movie of the era. Brain damage. I love the. Uh, this is Frank uh, Frank Henenlotter, who's a real uh, exploitation maven uh, of the past thirty some years. Uh, Frank Henenlotter made uh, Brain Dead uh, shortly after he made. Uh, I'm sorry, Brain Damage made it shortly after he made Basket Case, I believe. It's pulpy, it's schlocky, uh, it's got, uh, you know, it's a little bit psychedelic, and it's on Blu-ray. And, uh, you know, watch it if you, if you sort of enjoy this stuff. I like the, uh, the tagline here, it's a headache from hell. It's all kind of a, there's sort of a, you know, it's like a, a retro LSD plot to it. Um, and then, let's see, which of these am I going to save for the best? Okay, so we'll go with Kaltiki, the Immortal Monster. Uh, this is by Ricardo Freda and Mario Bava. It's got a, you know, it comes from the Giallo era. And it's, it's Italian cult cinema, really pretty much st- strictly for Giallo fans, people who like uh, Italian movies of that particular Giallo period in the 1960s, into the 70s. Uh, this, is the, this is for you. It's got tons and tons and tons of Giallo stuff on it, extras and discussions and interviews. And, I mean, all it's like a criterion trove of stuff um most people have not heard of kaltiki so they wouldn't necessarily uh you know get excited by the fact that this exists but if you know if the word kaltiki the immortal monster gets you all excited then then by all means get it another django movie django prepare a coffin uh this is maybe the best looking django movie yet on on blu-ray uh the um this is um uh, Ferdinando Fer, Ferdinando Baldi directed this, and it stars Terrence Hill as Django in this case, and uh, it's it's the usual thing. He's the you know it's like what you get in the in the Eastwood films. It's like what you get in the other Django movies. He's a gunslinger and he's kind of a lone you know Ronan samurai type guy, and uh, he has an interesting plan to take down a corrupt uh, local kind of a boss, a local political boss. And uh, it, this is how he executes his incredibly bloody and clever plan. And then the last one here, I gotta, I, I, you got to have this. If you're a fan of Yakuza movies, you're going to love this. Uh, Kinji Fukasaku is the godfather of the Yakuza genre. If there's anybody who's ever been attached to a single genre, a single crime genre, this is the guy. He invented the Yakuza film. He perfected it. And he hard-boiled it. And uh, Kinji Fukasaku has made a lot of great movies, including Battle Royale, which may be kind of his... That was his swan song, and it's one of his most famous films. Battle Royale is like, you know, uh, the Hunger Games amped no, up. No, on... that thing... that Battle Royale is the <laughs> Hunger Games rated triple R. Yeah, yeah it's, it's for real. It's the Hunger Games and Logan in one film. <laughs> there it is. Uh, and this here is pretty darn close, though. Cops versus Thugs. Although it's, it looks like it says oops versus thugs. Turn that around. Does it say oops uh, versus thugs? Yeah, it, it, but it's, it's cops versus this, thugs. The, the, the C and the O are too close together. Yeah, it's probably not the best graphic representation. Anyway, uh, it all takes place in 1963 in uh, the city of Kurashima. And uh, I, I, you know, do I need to tell you what the plot is? The, the yes. title is the plot. The title is the plot. So there's um, cops. And thugs. And it's just relentless and it's cool. There's some great twists in here. And uh, it's really, 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 really great. Uh, Fukusaku is just, he doesn't, it's not exploitative, but it feels just exploitation-y enough. Exploitation-y? Exploitation-y. It's really, really good. So, anyway. 
Uh, Mark, let's do some uh, new movies. Okay. Whatever you say, Wade. We might get back to some uh, foreign stuff later. But uh, last week, we talked about Resident Evil, which is a show that's gone on way too long. This week, we have another film series that's gone on way too long. Mark, introduce the ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) You know, as much as I love Kate Beckinsale, uh, I don't really want to see her in these movies. I think Underworld Blood Wars is, uh, you know, it's uh, pretty much as uh, bad as you would imagine. When are we going to get our Alien versus Predator mashup of Resident Evil and Underworld? <laughs> Don't you want to see Kate Beckinsale totally just take on uh, Mila Jovovich? Don't you want to just see them just go head to head? Well, you know, it's so sad about Alien versus Predator because, you know, Alien was such a crown jewel franchise, yeah. right, that they really destroyed it by pairing with The Predator, which yeah. is a series I like, but it's more of a B-movie series. But these two, Underworld and Resident Evil, they're so B-movie already. Yeah, just go for that it. And if you put the two together, Do it. It, would be, it would be two great tastes that taste great together. <laughs> but I, I mean, hopefully, I'm sure it won't be, but hopefully this is just like the, the, just the nail in the coffin of the series. You know, I just think that it's just about time to, to just to put this thing to bed. I mean, you know, there's plenty of blood and guts, and it's it's rated R. It's got a lot of bloody violence, which I think is is good, only because it's if if you're gonna be an R, just own it. But uh, and I do like the fact that it was directed by a woman. I think that's a good thing. Uh, but ultimately, this thing has this thing ran its course seven movies ago, and it's just trashy and awful and ridiculous, and just stop it. I, I seriously think they should they should mash those two up. There's no reason not to. I mean, they're both Sony, right? They're both Sony. They're both Sony properties. Just like Alien and Predator, both Fox properties. Do it. Do it. I would go see that. I don't want to see another Underworld movie. I do not want to see another Resident Evil movie. But oh my gosh, if Kate Beckinsale and, and Mila Jovovich were to go uh, Womano a Womano, I would be so into that. I would. I'd be there in a heartbeat. But it would not... It would not result in double the box office. Does it need to? Well, here, here's the thing. These, I'm sure these Resident Evil and, and, and Underworld films, what do they cost? $25, $30 million a piece? Yeah, probably that. Right, something like that. I mean, I'm sure the return on investment there is pretty good. I'm sure it is. It's international. It's blood and violence and guts, and it, it doesn't require much subtitling because it's just a bunch of uh, people fighting. I think fighting. it would be so fun if they did that. But if you, it would be so much. But fun. But if you put the two together, you might really kind of un- undercut that that return on investment. You, uh, you do it. You do it as a Batman versus Superman kind of a deal, right? They like they go womano a womano, and then they realize they need to team up, team up to take out the zombies and the and the freaking werewolves or whatever, and then uh, there it is: zombies and werewolves team up. Oh my gosh! Right. And the right? whole and the whole Flaw? thing and the whole thing and the whole thing becomes a prequel to uh, to the to the Twilight films. Oh my goodness! Anyway, all right. So uh, let's see what else we got here. Uh, collide, not colitis. Collide. Might as well be colitis. Uh, Nicholas Holt really needs to be doing a better job with his career. I got to be honest. Uh, this is this is strange. This is a strange movie that came out of the blue, and uh, I just I don't quite understand why this movie even exists. Everyone in it should be doing better work. Uh, Anthony, I mean, look, if I said to you, "There's a movie with Nicholas Holt, Anthony Hopkins, Ben Kingsley, and Felicity Jones," what would you say? Delicious. Right, but no, but I mean, you'd be like, oh, really? It's like a period film, right? It's what is it? The Felicity the- Jones, by the way, you know, she's engaged to be married. That means that I cannot marry her. Who's she gonna marry? Oh, some guy. Dude. <laughs> and Anthony Hopkins, what is he doing in this? It's called. It's called Anthony Hopkins had three three open days in his schedule. And Ben Kingsley too. 
Uh, well, Ben Kingsley will do anything. It's a crime film. I don't expect those four people in a crime film. Yeah, I really did. don't. Uh, it just doesn't. Anyway. So uh, Nick, it's kind of a, it's a young lovers on the run sort of thing. Uh, Nicholas Holt and Felicity Jones are in love. And Nicholas Holt, uh, you know, used to work for a drug smuggler, played by Ben Clink, Ben Kingsley. And then you got uh, Anthony Hopkins playing kind of a mob godfather guy. And, you know, they need a little bit of money for one last heist and yada, yada. There's all the usual stuff. And uh, I don't know. I don't know why all these people made this movie. I just don't. I don't know what would possess these people to to do this. It It just feels like. They all have good careers going, you know. Felicity Jones has got an Oscar nomination, and she was in a Star Wars movie, and Nicholas Holt was in Mad Max, and Anthony Hopkins and Ben Kingsley, they're, they're distinguished actors who have their Oscars. Why would you do this? How much money do they throw at people? I don't get it. Anyway, it's very run-of-the-mill. doesn't ruin anyone's careers, but it certainly doesn't help them anyway. Um, so um, The Shack... Oh, is this like is this that B-52s movie? Exactly. <clears throat> That's the Love Shack. Oh. Okay. So anyway, so this is uh, the completely charisma-free Sam Worthington, who uh, you, you've you got to figure this guy, he starred in two, he starred in Avatar and a Terminator sequel, right? He yeah. was like the thing for like 18 months. And you know, he was the he was the first choice to replace Mel Gibson in, in, in Mad, Mad Max. Max. Yeah. But then they realized this guy is just, he is just a, a it's just a, a dark hole he's a black hole of just no yeah. charisma he yeah. gives you nothing he's just a big empty vessel of nothing and somehow he winds up in the shack which is nothing but just like weepy emotions it's about this uh this father who whose daughter disappears and uh they got to find her and the and, you know octavia spencer you know she's god love her she's so great and you know, it's so nice to see her getting the the acclaim that she deserves. But she's got the whole here. She basically plays a magical Negro character, a god, mm, yeah. right? And it just seems like it's just so she shouldn't be doing this. She's so good. It's just too embarrassing. This is one of those quote unquote faith based movies. It's a faith based movie that, that tries to be mainstream and winds up being neither mainstream nor of it terribly faith based. No, it's just it's just sermons and saccharine and platitudes and it's just. I mean, here's the thing. Sam Worthington gives it about as good as he can. You know, he tries. He he's he's really trying to make this thing happen. But I just look at this guy's face. And he just he just he gives me nothing. Yeah. So the shack. You know, it was it was made by the by one of the guys who did uh, Blindside, which you liked, and I didn't really like that much. Yeah. And then we've got uh, Groundhog Day without jokes and without Bill Murray uh, in Before I Fall. Strange. Thing to want to do, I I don't really understand the the impetus and even pitching that. Um, but anyway, the this is the idea is that you got a woman who uh, who starts to relive the same day over and over, and um, it's supposed to be kind of like a life lesson thing, I guess. It it's not terribly interesting, and it doesn't find any great poignancy in in doing that. Um, so I, I I'm trying to figure out why somebody would even respond to that pitch. It's like it's like Groundhog Day, except without jokes and without Bill Murray. At that point, why? And without Harold Ramis, I don't really get it. But anyway, it's on Blu-ray, Ultraviolet. Every, just about everything has Ultraviolet now. Uh, the Black Coat's Daughter is a, is an okay horror film with uh, Emma Roberts. 
this is also ultraviolet, Blu-ray, Lionsgate released this. The uh, Emma Roberts should be doing better material than this. I just really truly um this is a you know a horror when film. i see emma roberts i'm like i want you to be what anne hathaway was during princess diaries like, right like this charming yeah. young woman who's gonna you know she can go on to great things yeah and that's not what she's doing yeah no it's not anyway the uh the, the whole thing is like it's one of those horror films that is uh, as so many horror and thrillers are it, it you know the w- takes the prep school the private school, the uh, boarding school as prison or as, uh, you know, apocalyptic landscape, whatever. It's a metaphor. And in this case, the prep school is uh, is a place where she and a classmate are are stranded after their parents don't come and get them. And it gets colder and it's winter break. And, uh, you know, suddenly it turns out there's something else that's uh, haunting the environs. The Black Coat's daughter. What's, what's weird about, I mean, look at the studio who made this. We were talking about this studio. Uh, A24. A24. Yeah. You know, they're, the A24 is such a promising. It's an unusual thing for them to want to get behind. Lionsgate is releasing it, releasing it on Blu-ray. A24 released it theatrically, but yeah, it's whatever. You know, it's a weird time for like these new upstart distributors like A24. And you know what? I, there, was a, there, was also, there was a big article, actually might have been in Vanity Fair also, of, uh, uh, with Jason Blum. I, yeah, Blumhouse. I, I heard that. I heard you that. You know what? He's a smart guy. Yep. At first I thought he was just some weird, just some horror guy. Well, he's a real smart guy. But, but he's more marketing than anything else. Let's be honest. Jason Blum is not doing anything. I just had this conversation with somebody else the other day. Jason Blum is not doing anything that Roger Corman, that Sam Arkoff, that, uh, you know, a million other guys before him did not also do to great effect and to great prosperity. I mean, he is, he is following a model that has been pioneered uh, dozens and dozens of times. What he's doing differently is that as soon as paranormal activity hit, he went out there and he marketed the hell out of his brand. And it's a brand now. So it's, he's, He's yes, he's smart, but he's you know, as a filmmaker, he's not doing anything new. He's not reinventing the wheel. But as a marketing guy, he is he's branding himself in a really brilliant way. Yeah, but if you look at something like Get Out, yeah, I mean that's that's not an easy film to. That's like a real movie. Yeah, I mean Corman, you know, Corman did some socially conscious stuff that he kind of doesn't sure. get, he doesn't get credit for, but uh, but still, that's Blumhouse. All right, now we're going to talk about a little TV. Uh, we've got a couple of uh, complete series box sets. One of them I know makes Mark very, very happy. I know he's going to want this on his shelf. Wait, I'm, gonna, I'm about to drop the mic. Hang you're you're, you're going to binge this for the next month and a half, aren't you? What is it? Oh, uh, Duck Dynasty. <laughs> you know what's funny about Duck Dynasty and this huge box set is that I, I, just, can't see, I just can't see people who like this show having enough money <laughs> to buy a Duck Dynasty complete series box set. You know, it is a little weird, yeah. but uh, it's all 130 uh, episodes, uh, 11 seasons on one gigantic box set. This, of course, is uh, not Blu-ray. This is DVD. And uh, I don't know what to say about the show. The show is a yeah. phenomenon for a while. And then, of course, after a while, you get the crazy old codger who winds up saying something about uh, something controversial about God or blacks, whatever he said. <laughs> and then before you know it, <laughs> the house of cards falls apart. Yeah, well, but last it's not... episode is an actual lynching. <laughs> it's a very special episode. Uh, but describe the artwork on the cover. Uh, there, it's uh, it's the the, for the four guys, uh, the four main guys, is as if they're on Mount Rushmore. That's it. And that's Rushmore how the people. fans of this show feel. It really is true. Uh, that's how they feel. 
Uh, we also have a complete series, long overdue, of Heart to Heart, a show that I watched relentlessly when it was part of that amazing ABC lineup in the uh, 70s and 80s that took us all the way from, you know. I mean, do you, do, you remember, do you remember the commercials? Do you remember the commercials every year when ABC was number one? We're still mm. the one. They keep playing that song. Still the one. Remember those commercials? It yeah, was great. of course. There was, there was one where everybody's in balloons. Like Fonzie's in a balloon, an air balloon, and he's waving to you know to 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 the the Charlie's Angels girls, and they're waving back, and then the Love Boat people, Darren McGavin is up there, and it's great. Wait, wait, I'm trying to find. Are you trying to find that commercial? Oh yeah. Well, Heart to Heart was part of that. Starsky and Hutch, and we're still the one promo. Beretta, and it was great. There it is. That's it. That's the commercial. That's it. Terrible. That's it. Those were great. Still the one times. by the Orleans. So anyway, uh, Heart to Heart was uh, was one of the best shows. Look, I mean, they're rich. They're in love. They're great. Robert Wagner and uh, Stephanie Powers. Uh, and, you know, created by the guy who created I Dream of Jeannie, Sidney Sheldon, no less. Come on. It's great stuff. Lots of fun. Uh, and the thing, the thing solving, Steph- cr- solving crimes. They had they had what's his face as the chauffeur. Oh, I know the the uh, uh, Lionel Standard. Lionel Standard. Yes. The thing about Stephanie Powers, right? Yes. Is that you look at her now and you're like, God, she's beautiful. But when you watch the show, she didn't seem beautiful. Yeah, she did. No, she was, she was awesome. It was, it was something, something about the hair. She, she got she the '70s awesome. hair going. Ah, it's still it's great though. She you know because she, she sagged into this. After she did so well on the uh, the Bigfoot episodes of the Six Million Dollar Man, which was also part of that ABC lineup, she paid she played Bigfoot. Did anybody? Were there any other network shows at the time? Did CBS and NBC have anything in the seventies? Because I don't remember it. Well, CBS like, was more Columbo, of a Columbo, Columbo, and uh, All in the Family, and yeah. well, CBS is more of a sitcom factory, yeah, they right? Were. They were yeah, All in the uh, Family, yeah. and they had they had those Mary sorts of shows, Mary Tyler Moore shows. Yeah. Anyway. ABC was killing it this time. Now, so get this. That's all I'm going to say is get this. Complete series, heart to heart. It's a whole lot of fun. It's fantastic. 110 episodes. It's great. Absolutely great. Loads of fun. Cannot get enough. Shout Factory. Outdo yourselves every single week. But here's the thing. Have you heard about the new new heart to heart? There is a new heart to heart. They're doing a new heart to heart. You've heard this, right? I, I have and then forgot. Uh, they, they're, they're doing it as like two gay guys. It's like a gay couple. Okay, now, do you like that or not like that? Well, well, I don't have a problem with the concept of, like, two gay men who are detectives, but why do you have to call them heart-to-heart? Like, Be- that's not heart-to-heart. Heart-to-heart is, you know, like, bees are, this is heart-to-heart. Let this be heart-to-heart. Don't take the name and then slap it onto a totally different show and then pretend like it's the same thing. It's funny, because heart-to-heart has been call around. It, call it the gay version of heart-to-heart, but uh- we're going to call it, like, you know... Uh, Stramwell and Clucky, or I don't know what. Stramwell it, and Clucky. Um, I, I am so on board with but Stramwell call and Clucky. It something else. You're 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 cheating if you're it's borrowing. Just, it's just you're, it's not hard to heart. It's just the same title. But what's funny you're cheating. is cheating. What's funny is that it's hard to heart was so long ago that when you when you're in a room pitching, why don't we redo Heart to Heart? It was a hit in the seventies. Yeah. Anybody who remembers what that show is is probably so old and has become so conservative why, that they don't want to see gay people on television. Why? Why is? Why do you have to do the odd couple? Again, with black guys. Do do two black guys who don't get along and they're roommates and call it something else. Because because you know why? Because then you'll be losing dozens and dozens of articles about the reboot of Odd Couple. Uh, Net- blank Network rebooting blank. It's just, it's so, it's so callow. It's just so calculating. Yeah, you'd, okay. you'd work on one in a second. Yeah, well, yeah, I'd take the work. Of course I'd take the work. Exactly. But, you know, it doesn't he's make it He's a sellout. He's a sellout. <laughs> 
Okay. And then uh, let's see. Uh, some uh, stuff. Decoy. Decoy is a Beverly Garland show from a million years ago that ran for 39 episodes and then everybody promptly forgot it. Now, Beverly Garland, uh, you've... Mark, Hi, Wade. Mark cannot handle a microphone today. It's you know what? It's the tripod. It's, this tripod's messed up. Uh-huh. There and also, is. this cord is too thick. Okay. And also, I'm stupid. <laughs> so Beverly Garland is, uh, is an actress from, from of yore, 1950s primarily, and... Uh, she has sort of um, branded herself. You know, she she's like behind these um, these shows now, right? These 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 shows where all the old stars gather and they do. You know, they sign their audit, they sign their pictures and all that stuff. These memorabilia shows. They're out here in the valley, right? You know that. Oh, that's that, half those guys from the seventies and eighties make their. That's how they make their living. Yeah. They so were the fourth banana on some horrible show. And so they she has become the godmother of uh, of that whole thing. Anyway, this is a show from nineteen fifty seven. And uh, it was basically just a just a crime show. Um, you know, it, she was a policewoman, and it dealt with a lot of real life stories. And it kind it was kind of sort of dragnetty and policewomany. Uh, you know, it, it sort of found it, but it didn't really find an audience. It found a a place in those genres, but it didn't really find an audience. Uh, so it didn't last past the 39 episodes, but it's well worth rediscovering. Um, Beverly Garland is a terrific actress. She's really believable as a policewoman. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a cool show. It's a nice little blast from the past. So uh, check out Decoy, 39 episodes from Film Chest, who does so much interesting stuff, too. They all, they're always rediscovering fun things. Uh, Wade, The Last Ship is a show on TNT, and uh, it's about a uh, virus that wipes out... Uh most of mankind and uh, everybody who's on the ship, they're immune and uh, they don't get the virus. So they've got to float around and try to find a way to stop the virus and save the world. You know, and there it is. And there it is. That's the last ship. This is season three on DVD. I will say that um, uh, the reason why uh, the show uh, depresses me is because uh, one of my editors, my, one of my AEs, I'm on, yeah. you know, I work at E, one of my AEs left, quit me to go become an AE on the last ship. Uh-huh. Now, if you're an editor... You want, like you you want to yep. go from E where you're cutting like uh, some some two minute piece on the Selena Gomez's latest uh, tweet. Yeah. You want to go to like a one hour episodic network thing. Sure that's a, that's that's a hard gig to get. Yeah, you know, even as an AE. Yep. So he's like, uh, Mark, I think I'm going to get this uh, AE gig at uh, Last Ship, and I'm just letting you know if I get, it, I I got to take off. I'm like, hey man, you got to do it. So yeah, so he uh, left, and uh, I don't know if he's still on the show. But anyway, do what you got to do. Also, I think uh, also you know what I, f- I feel bad for the show actually because you know Eric Dane, who's the star of the show, they had to shut down production because Eric Dane was suffering from depression. Really? Yeah, I did not know that. They 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 shut the show down because he's really? uh, suffering from depression. Holy cow! I uh, don't know uh, the latest whether they've uh, 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 you know whether the show got picked up whether they they've uh, restarted production, but. I feel bad because you get this guy, Eric Dane, you know, and th- th- there's like 60 people who work on these shows, you know? Yeah. And the star gets depressed. All these people are they're basically out of work. Here's a question mark. Uh, question mark? <laughs> <laughs> so season four of, the in- of uh, Inside Amy Schumer, Comedy Central. Uh-huh. Got it right here. Uh-huh. Uh, there's not a lot on here. It's just, you know, it's season four and it's some funny stuff. And then there's a little thing on uh, inside the writer's room and, uh, and some outtakes. Okay. The show is still funny. It's a good sure. show. You're, sure. you're like, sure, you're not really. I'm right. a little over her. She's got to figure out the next well, phase. Okay, but but here's the thing. So the show is still funny. She's still funny on it. I agree. She has to figure out the next phase. But is she a movie star? 
Um, we had a moment with the uh, with the with with the, uh, the, the 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 thing. The oh, train wreck. Train wreck. Which, by the way, I loved. That is Which, a great, okay. hilarious movie. It's a funny movie. It's too long. Well, all those. But I think there's also a little bit. I mean, yes, it's charming and it's got the Apatow touch. And and Apatow makes things that should not work somehow work. And he also makes things too long. He makes things too long, but somehow, with few exceptions, he tends to find a way of of manufacturing success out of something that really should not succeed. That film should have had a lot of problems. When you when you've got Amy Schumer and and Bill Hader on screen and they are not as funny as LeBron James. When LeBron James is stealing scenes from both of them, that to my mind is a problem. But it didn't end up being a problem in the movie. People still liked it and they loved it. But the question is notwithstanding that, you know, Knocked Up was a big hit too and Katherine Heigl went and and put her career right into the meat grinder and destroyed her her credibility overnight. I mean, she has never had another movie like that. So, is Amy Schumer just going to be another one who loses it after she unmoors herself from Apatow? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think she should do stand-up and write films. Because you realize that that Goldie Hawn thing, what is it, Snatch? Snatched? Is, is that, what, what? Seriously? I don't know what that was. What, what is that? Let's remake Ruthless People with Amy Schumer and uh, Goldie Hawn and uh, do a mother-daughter thing. What's going on? I don't get that. I don't get, oh, you know what? It's, 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 it's a complete Mother's Day play. Let's get Goldie yeah, Hawn, her first film in God knows how okay. long. So, so I get it. It's a complete Mother's Day play. Fine, fair enough. Okay. So, now, as as someone who engages in professional punditry about this business, let me give somebody a word of advice if they are saying, "Oh, let's make a play for Mother's Day." Every movie that is released on Mother's Day has tanked, has tanked for at least twenty years. Mother's Day is arguably the second or third worst weekend to release a movie in the year. Labor Day, Labor Day weekend, easily. Worst worst weekend for a movie of the whole year. It's the worst. You do not want to release on Labor Day weekend. I would say number two, I mean, the the weekend after New Year's is, is right up there. That's pretty bad. But I would say Mother's Day is even worse. I would say Mother's Day weekend, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't release a movie. Just hold things back. Don't play for Mother's Day. Christmas used to be the worst too. Now Christmas is like a legitimate. Uh, Christmas, no Christmas has got, well. It depends, you know. I mean, I when remember I, when that. I was growing up, Christmas was like a like nobody released a film on Christmas. Well, when you worked at the AFCO, what did they tell you about Christmas? It's fun and people love each other. Okay, that's great. <laughs> no, that what I was what I when I was working at the National, when you were working at the at the AFCO, just a few blocks away, and we didn't know each other. Uh, the the uh, they told me they said Christmas is the biggest weekend of the year. Christmas movies, Christmas weekend, that's it. It's you want it, you want your movie opening then because people go like stand in line forever. Now maybe that was just a Westwood thing, but um, Christmas was a big deal. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yet anyway. at the same time boring. Ah, uh, yes. Very good. That's a lovely thing. Uh, let me hit a few uh, Britishy things here real quickly. Uh, Dark Angel, starring Joanna Froggett of uh, Downton Abbey fame, in a very interesting twist and turn. Uh, she, you know, on, Down- on Downton Abbey, she was wonderful, and she was she was thought to have been guilty of a crime at one point, which she wasn't. And we were also relieved because we just loved her, and we celebrated her pregnancy and birth at the end of the show, and that was fantastic. Uh, here she stars in Dark Angel, which is the true story of Britain's first female uh, serial killer. It is a uh, 
It is a story I was unfamiliar with. It's based on a book called Marianne Cotton, Britain's First Female Serial Killer. And uh, it's really, really good. And it's got a great cast, uh, a lot of familiar faces, and uh, just really good, solid British television uh, production. It's really, really good. And there's behind-the-scenes stuff here. And uh, I, I highly recommend it. It's a, it's a great uh, kind of a... It's not Victorian England. I guess it's kind of semi... I guess it is Victorian England. So it's, uh, you know, it's uh, Marianne Cotton who... Uh, who killed people in Victorian England, late Victorian. It's late Victorian, pre-Edwardian. And then uh, that's Dark Angel. Really good. And then uh, also in the same vein, a little bit different, uh, a little bit more um, kind of, well, more ensemble or ensemblish. Victorian Slum House. Um, and this is a um, this is a really novel kind of an idea. So this is, a, this is what you would call, I guess, what they refer to as a living history series. And there's a lot of London. If you've been to London, you know that a lot of London has not changed in, you know, like, like a lot of Paris and a lot of old European cities, hasn't changed in, you know, centuries, at least, 100, at least 150 years. So part of the East End, uh, they take here and, and it's, you know, they resurrect the, 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 the current East End to its uh, Industrial Revolution era, Victorian era, uh, look and feel and style and everything else. And um, you take a bunch of current families and you force them to now live what is basically a pre-industrial or, or early industrial revolutionary Victorian uh, life. And you chronicle that. And it is, um, it's really quite interesting. It's, uh, I don't know what we can necessarily glean from this. I, it's not like it's really teaching you anything other than how people react in certain circumstances, kind of like those prisoner and warden scenarios that always go awry. But, uh, it, you know, you're, you're recreating the 1870s, the 1880s, the 1890s, and it's quite interesting. Um, it, 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 it's, it's a little more gimmicky than I would like, but uh, there, is, there is something to it. So, um, uh, yeah, something to it. Martin Clune's Islands of Australia, the wonderful uh, star of Doc Martin, takes time out to do what a lot of British uh, stars do, which is uh, host a travel show. Uh, it worked for Terry Jones. Poor Terry Jones. Isn't that sad? I know. It makes me very sad. It worked for Terry Jones, and Martin. it's going to work for Martin Clune. So he goes to Australia, and he uh, you know, goes scuba diving and snorkeling and plays with uh, all kinds of fun animals and takes you into wonderful places. And, uh, you know, he explores the islands of Australia and uh, makes you wish that you, you could afford to be on vacation all the time, too. Code of a Killer is a um, uh, it's an okay thriller uh, starring David Threlfall, who's a wonderful actor, and John Sim, with whom I am relatively unfamiliar. Uh, this takes place in the 1980s. It is, it is loosely based in the, um, the events surrounding the use of DNA, which was in its nascent stages then, to uh, catch the double murderer of two young girls. And uh, it, it, you know, that normally would not necessarily be a really, I, I, I'm of the mind that you know, forensics and the digital era have kind of ruined cop shows on television. I think that now that everybody can kind of put things under a microscope and then Google them, that that makes procedurals a lot less interesting. I don't think CSI is, is uh, you know, the CSIization of, of, of procedurals has not been necessarily a good thing. But, you know, people like it. Anyway, this sort of goes to the roots of that. And uh, it, it, is, it is more interesting than I think it probably should be. So uh, if, you'll, you know, if you have some interest in how that all kind of came to be, 
uh, it actually sort of traces its roots to this story. And then golden years, armed and elderly. Come on, Mark. Forget about the Sunshine Boys. Aww. This is where it's at, right? You know, they remade Going in Style. I never even saw it. They remade Going in Style. Yeah, I know. Morgan Freeman and Alan Arkin. and Lame. Lame. Not interested. These things shouldn't be remade. Uh, But this is actually sweet. This is a uh, television movie made for the UK um, about a uh, a suburban elderly couple who just cannot, cannot make ends meet with their pension. And you know what they do? They... Kill people. No, they don't kill people. They're on a full-on rampage. No, they just start uh, They start robbing. They start robbing. They become like an elderly Bonnie and Clyde. Kill people. And uh, no, Rampage. It's, it's, uh, anyway, any, anyway <laughs> they, the, the thing about this is they eventually enlist their, all of their elderly friends, and it's a chance for a lot of the aging uh, British actors to really have a, a whole lot of fun. Um, a lot of people, a lot of wonderful people show up in this, including Simon Callow, who I can never get enough of. I wish Simon Callow would act more. I really do. I wish we'd see him more over here. I know he acts quite a bit in the UK, but Simon Callow is just the best, especially in uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral. So, uh, and a good filmmaker, too. Very good film. Bernard Hill, um, Virginia McKenna, uh, uh, Ellen Thomas, I mean, uh, Una Stubbs, really, really just great British actors. So this is a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. Kill people. <laughs> okay, stop. <laughs> Uh, DC uh, expands their brand just a little bit more in Vixen the movie. This is a uh, this is this is a basically a big supercut of a bunch of shorts that were on um, the CW online, and they put them together and they kind of created some new footage to make a movie called Vixen the movie. Vixen is a, a hero who uh, grew up in um, she was uh, grew up in Africa, and then she winds up uh, you know she has the strength of animals. She can she can be strong as a gorilla or as fast as a cheetah. I mean, I don't find its character all that interesting. But uh, so what they did is they threw in, they threw in Green Arrow, they threw in Flash, they threw in you know a bunch of other folks, so that you know at least you kind of at least there's some tie to the to the live action stuff that's on uh, CW now. This of course was uh, overseen by Greg Berlanti, who was becoming just the DC guy. I mean, you know, he, he, I wish he'd do the movies. I he, do. Like I, I I'll wish trust, that he would Godfather the movies. I trust him more than uh, Zack Snyder. So much more. So much more. So if you're into uh, if if you're into every single gosh darn character in the DC universe, then I guess you got to uh, at least watch Vixen the movie. Then there's a uh, there's a show called Ice, which is on the Audience Network, which you can watch if you have Directv or UVerse. If not, then uh, you're not missing all that much. This has a great cast and it's a good pedigree. This is Donald Sutherland, uh, Ray Winstone, who's awesome. Um, and one of the episodes, I think probably just the pilot, was directed by Antoine Fuqua. But this is uh, not. This is when I say ICE. This is not about immigration and custom enforcement. This is about. Uh, this is about um, ICE merchants, ICE dealers, and it's not great. It's got some moments. I think what I liked about it is that it gets into a little thing about the way this family came together. I kind of like the fact that. The reason why this family was able to have success in the diamond business is because they escaped Europe when the Holocaust was starting, and then they became kind of a secular Jewish group, you know, still kind of holding their position in an industry that's kind of run by Hasidic Jews, especially in New York. So I think there's some interesting stuff to mine there. Um, at least it's not like a typical, you know, action, budget action crap. Um, so there is something there. I just don't know that the audience network 
has the budget to be able to afford the writers and showrunners who are going to make this thing work long term. But for now, we have season one of Ice, which, of course, on the cover says an AT&T original series, which is, I find very depressing. Yeah, an AT&T original series. That's dreadful. An AT&T. Your phone company is now making original series. You know, it's Ameri gonna, American Telephone and Telegraph is making wait, original series. Just wait. Just wait until the Postal Service starts making original content. From UPS. <laughs> in the world. <laughs> original content from FedEx. Uh, that would be great. That'd be fantastic. You're from from uh, your your hardware. Your true true hardware presents. <laughs> Every, oh, it's just gonna be the, the worst. Ice Ace so, is the place with your helpful hardware man. We've got uh, we have a few um, uh, we've got a few uh, foreign films we want to get to. Might get to some anime here before the end of the show. So uh, the bet forget about L and Verhoeven and all of his weird twists to his sexual fetishes. The only reason that L worked was because Isabelle Huppert was in it. Without Isabelle Huppert, if you stick like Sharon Stone in that, it's just another trashy Verhoeven movie about sexual obsession and and him wanting to just show nasty. I just did not care for Elle. I get why people liked it. I didn't care for it either. No, but she's I, great I, I, in I'm, it. I'm watching and thinking, God, am I missing something? Yeah, but you know what? The better Isabelle Huppert film from last year, which got overshadowed, Things to Come. Things to Come. Things to Come. Yeah, good. We like this. We like this a lot. Uh, it's a real performance. It's not Isabelle Huppert doing what everybody always casts her to do, which is to be the unpredictable, uh, cold, schizophrenic ice queen with something up her sleeve and, you know, a little bit mentally unstable and a few screws loose. And, uh, you know, she's been playing that so much. And she does, she's great at it. And she does it better than anyone else ever has. Uh, but she's also a great actress at everything else. And she can do all kinds of things. And uh, this is about a woman who is a teacher, she's a professor. And you would think she has a great life with, you know, her kids and her husband, who's also a professor, and then everything just collapses. And her husband's going to leave her. And now she's sort of at, the, at a point in her life when you're, you're supposed to be settling into the fact that everything is now stable and your choices have panned out and you have family. Now she has to reinvent her life. And uh, Things to Come is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful movie. Written and directed by Mia Hansen-Love, who's one of the best of this new crop and new generation of uh, French filmmakers. Uh, this is just uh, a, this is a wonderful film. It won Best Director at the Berlin Film Festival last year. And uh, it, is, it is incredibly well-written, incredibly well-directed, and beautifully acted. And it is on Blu-ray. And you've got to check it out. This is from MPI, uh, Things to Come with Isabelle Huppert. Absolutely beautiful movie. Um, and then a couple of criterions before Mark will share uh, uh, with us his thoughts about his favorite vegetable. Uh, we've got a couple of criterions here. Uh, Ozu's Good Morning, to go along with all the other great Ozu that uh, has been released by oh, Criterion. Oh, yeah, it's, it's based on the song from, uh, uh, from uh, uh, Singing in the Rain. Good morning, good morning. Okay, you and, yeah, thanks. All right, fair enough. Uh, so this is, uh, this is once again, it's classic Ozu. It is, uh, it's all about, you know, the, 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 um, the, uh, the struggle, the, uh, the generation gap in Japan, uh, in post-war society. And, uh, except this one's a little, little funnier, a little sweeter, a little bit, um, a little bit, uh, more of a frolic made in 1959 just kind of there on that turning point with the Japanese new wave before it goes into a into a 
a heavier, darker place for a lot of filmmakers. Uh, but it's a, it is a, it is, it's a film that transcends even the issues of Japanese culture. If you are just trying to work day to day, get along with your parents, deal with you know all the the, the crushing realities of uh, the 1950s, this speaks to you. And it speaks to you in Japan, speaks to you outside of Japan. It's great. Also includes a 1932 uh, silent comedy, I Was Born But, which was one of uh, Ozu's um, earlier efforts before the war. And there's an interview with David Bordwell, one of the great, uh, you know, who, who writes all the great books that I even used as a textbook. And uh, a bunch of other fun things, including a 1929 silent film that Ozu made called Straightforward Boy. Uh, just a piece of it. Uh, that it, it doesn't exist in its entirety. It's kind of a lost film. And then we also have uh, the late Chantal Ackerman's masterpiece, Jeanne Dillman, 23 Quai du Commerce, uh, 180 Bruxelles, that means 1080 Brussels, uh, otherwise known just as Jeanne Dillman, which is legendary. This is the film that everybody usually associates uh, Chantal Ackerman with. It's now on Blu-ray. Story of uh, a widow who is uh, basically just trying to make her, you know, maintain some stability in her life. And it is it is just a beautifully made film. It is fantastic. It is uh, far and away the film that Under Ackerman should be remembered for. And it is challenging and beautiful. It's a 2K restoration. Uh, tons and tons and tons of extras. You learn so much about the film and Ackerman from watching the extras, and then you watch the film again, and it's just a revelation all over again. Beautiful, beautiful every, film in every conceivable way. <clears throat> I have something beautiful in every conceivable way. Don't say that. Uh, my Life is a Zucchini was nominated for an uh, Academy Award for Best Animated Feature Film. Uh, this is stop-motion animation, and it's, uh, you know, it's poppy and fun and colorful, but it has kind of a sober heart because it's... Uh, about a young young zucchini person, nine year old, and they uh, loses uh, the the mother, is taken to a foster home, and has to kind of try to find a new family. They swagged the hell out of us with this movie, didn't they? I, you know, did uh, why did I not love this movie as much as everybody else loved it? It's did a sweet it? film. It's Swiss, sure, and it's uh, it was Oscar nominated, and um, I don't know. I mean, it's 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 maybe it's. I think after a while, after ten minutes, I was like, uh, are you just gonna play in your room and? <laughs> is, is there something happening in this movie? It's uh, well, it's much more. It's not you know. There's not going to be a big a set piece in there. It's a nice sweet. Is, is there a big superhero fight in it? No, but but here's the thing. They swag the daylights out of us during award season with this. Like you got the keychain, right? The little guy on the keychain, yeah, zucchini keychain, sure. and you got the zucchini T-shirt. No, you didn't. I didn't get that. You didn't get the zucchini T-shirt. No. Oh, I got the zucchini T-shirt. I would. So, I would have given it to Goodwill. I so wouldn't want my, that. My daughter already knows all about this because there was so much zucchini stuff around the house. She was playing with the plate with the uh, the keychain, and then I would wear the T-shirt to bed, and she would go, "That's zucchini." No, it's my not. daughter knows all about this movie. It's une courgette. Yeah. Well. Ma that's, vie de courgette. That's exact. Yes, that's it's it it's that. Yes, that is what the actual French title is. Anyway, um, which you you know not bad. The uh, English voice casting that no. they do in the dub version, not yeah. bad at all. I agree. I Amy, agree. Nick Offerman and uh, Amy Sedaris, Amy Sedaris and Will Forte. Thing. It's good. Yeah, you know, they 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 got the right voices. I still like the French version better, but uh, still. Uh, Mark, let's wrap out. I want to make mention of a few uh, anime things, if I if I may. Uh, Funimation has released what is really a historic piece of anime, and very often the anime that we talk about is like, if you're not an anime fan, don't bother. You know, it's just you you need to immerse yourself in a world that is has been you know uh, preceded by dozens and dozens of seasons and and, hundreds, and hundreds of hours of immersive you know robot and post-apocalyptic and futuristic fantasy worlds and Gundam suits and you know all kinds of things 
not so here. Momotaro Sacred Sailors is the first ever animated uh, feature film made in Japan. It was uh, a World War II propaganda film, especially. It was uh, fully funded by the Navy Ministry and then uh, kind of fell out of, out of circulation after the war for all the obvious reasons. But um, it's been rediscovered. It has been restored by Shikoku, the uh, oldest film studio in the world, like 120, 130 years old. I mean, right from the like, 19, 1890s when Shikoku was, uh, was, uh, was first uh, fu established. Funimation played a part in helping get this restored, and uh, this is the first time that it has been uh, released in uh, high def. It is a beautiful Blu-ray and DVD uh, combo set. This was screened last year at the Cannes Film Festival, and uh, it is uh, it is a truly, I mean, a, you know, notwithstanding the propaganda aspects of it, this guy and his animal friends and their, you know, hyper patriotism, uh, it is and rooted in Japanese folklore, I would add. But uh, this is truly in a, a, a really an exceptional milestone in uh, in animation history. Momotaro, Sacred Sailors, really, really an amazing film, worth discovering, rediscovering, especially. And uh, let's see. Well, I guess uh, as long as I mentioned Gundam, let's throw another Gundam on the on the uh, on the docket. On the Barbie. We'll go. Yeah, we'll go out with uh, yet another terrific Gundam release from uh, the Right Stuff, uh, part of the Sunrise Library. This is a Mobile Suit Gundam movie trilogy and on Blu-ray, and this is the uh, this is the series that actually uh, launched the uh, the Gundam. Uh, uh, the Gundam series. These are these are three feature films, three feature-length Gundam films that introduce the world of Gundam and the Universal Century and uh, Amuro Ray and uh, you know everything that that is part of the Gundam universe and the Gundam myth and the mystique. This is where it begins, and uh, it, these three films kind of launched it all, and then every, it really caught fire, and now it's just exploded, and there's more Gundam than anybody knows what to do with now. Uh, so really, really a uh, little bit of film history here as well. Uh, more specific to uh, anime history if you're not really into the Gundam thing. But if you want to start, you know, you can. You don't have to know all the world of Gundam. This will introduce you. These three movies, Gundam Trilogy, Mobile Suit Gundam Movie Trilogy, from Sunrise and Light Stuff. And with that, Mark, I think we are uh, we are done. What's uh, what's on what's on store for what's in store for you this summer? What movies are you really looking forward to? Well, I, already, I already saw Alien. Yeah. Uh, what else is going on? I guess Spider-Man. You're looking forward to Wonder Woman? I mean, I'm more curious than I am looking forward. Yeah. I, I don't have much hope that it'll be great. Well. I, I, I'm just hoping it winds up being good. okay. Well, it's, it's coming out this Friday, and uh, I will see it probably tomorrow or the next day. So I will, I will, I will have my Wonder Woman thoughts very soon. All right, with that, we are done, and we will see you guys next week.